when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of From Hostage to Hero. Sorry, Delamont here. Before we get started, another reminder to ask you to please go wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a review. It doesn't even have to be a written review, although I would love to hear what you have to say about the podcast. Just hit the star review there, please, for us. That helps us get this podcast into more hands. And speaking of that, make sure that you tell your colleagues about this podcast because we want to spread the word. All right. Well, today we're talking about the three fundamentals that you have to understand about storytelling. And I've been working with clients a lot on storytelling lately. And in the last podcast, we talked about the difference between teaching and storytelling and how we have to reverse the show and tell model in that we tell during the teaching part of our opening and we show during the storytelling part of our opening. And if we do this well, what that allows is for the jurors to come to their own conclusion and really own the story and and the wrongdoing in our case. And so if you haven't listened to that podcast episode, I invite you to go back and listen to the one just right before this one that talks about the difference between storytelling and teaching. And you know, when I'm I'm thinking about that, so many of you say, well, we don't have credibility to teach, we can't teach, but you sneak it in your story. That's the problem is that when you're telling the story about what happened, you're stopping to describe what this term means or you're giving a backstory or you're describing some kind of um, technique or a rule. And that's what I mean by teaching is that that all belongs in the teaching section so that you can keep your story clean. But today we're going to focus on the storytelling aspect versus the teaching aspect, uh, because once you have your teaching section down, which is the what should have happened, then you're going to tell us what did happen. And then the jurors, of course, can compare the two and come to their own conclusion. And if you've done it well, they come to the conclusion (laughs) that the defendant caused the injury or the wrongdoing and they must um, compensate the victim. All right, so there are three fundamentals here that as you put your story together, I want you to keep in mind because these are the three things that I find that if you don't understand these things, your storytelling goes off the rails. So the first fundamental is that the story is always, or at least should always, be about the audience. So Often when I'm listening to a story, I'm wondering how it affects the jurors. So if I'm, I'm listening to the story that you're telling in opening, as compelling as it may be about the plaintiff or, or the defendant or whatever it is, whatever story you're telling in the moment, it always, and particularly at trial, needs to really be about the jurors. 
Now, if you were part of our uh, membership launch events over the last about two weeks, we just closed the membership yesterday. So if you didn't get in, oh, sorry, not yesterday, two days ago, if you didn't get in, then your next chance to join the membership, the H2H membership is uh, in 2021, probably January. Go to fromhostagetohero.com to sign up on the wait list to know when it opens again. But if you participated in those events, we did do a live training, which is housed in the From Hostage to Hero Facebook group. Uh, If you're not a part of that group, go ahead and find From Hostage to Hero in Facebook. And you can go back and you can watch. And I did a training about how to make your case or focus your case on the jury instead of the plaintiff or your client and why that's so important. And so a couple of things I'm going to mention here, I mentioned back in that training, but to get an in-depth look at this point of making your whole case about the jury, you might want to go back and check out that training. Again, that's found in the From Hostage to Hero Facebook group. But the story has to be about the jurors. Why? Well, we know that we cannot focus anymore. We used to be able to, what, 50 years ago (laughs) on sympathy or, you know, hoping that the jurors will see our plaintiff and hear their story and, and want to make things right. As, as much as, as we want to believe this about humans, unfortunately, due to tort reform and other things. Uh, And as Rick Friedman once said, I thought it was so, so clearly communicated. We used to look at the plaintiff and think, there but by the grace of God go I, meaning that could have happened to me. I could have been in a wheelchair. I could have been the one that was injured. However, in today's uh, world, we now, meaning jurors now, look at the defendant and think there, but by the grace of God, go I. Meaning you make one little mistake and in this Sue happy culture, you're going to get sued. So we cannot rely on the jurors finding our plaintiff sympathetic or wanting to make it right for the plaintiff. As horrible as that sounds, unfortunately, we've got to make the story about the juror. And that's because everyone listens to WIFM. What's in it for me? So when you understand that your story is for and about the jury, that's going to change the way you approach it. Because when you're trying to say, highlight this great example from an H2H case um, that we're working up in the H2H membership, we have case workshops, we have um, storytelling that happens in our nonverbal feedback coaching. We have our voir dire circles, but in our nonverbal feedback uh, coaching recently, someone came in with a story and they were telling the story from the plaintiff point of view. And so when we do this in terms of storytelling, what often ends up happening is because the jurors, again, the story's about them, whether we make it about them or not, they put themselves into the story. And so they start to think, oh my goodness, this happened to the plaintiff. So let me look for all the ways that I can avoid this ever happening to me. And the way that they uh, 
make that happen is by looking for wrongdoing on the plaintiff's side. Because we believe, right or wrong, that if we had made different decisions, that we could save ourselves from the same fate that, the, that happened to the plaintiff. And so that's the danger in telling it from the plaintiff's point of view, for example, is that the jurors, because they insert themselves into the story, because we always want stories to be about us. And we always see when we're listening to stories, we always relate it to our own experiences that they start looking for the wrongdoing. And that's called defensive attribution because they want to believe had they made a different choice, they would have remained safe, unlike our plaintiff. So we had the the storyteller, the H2H member, tell the story from the defendant's point of view. And it was an incredible difference. And I just want you to notice that because jurors insert themselves into the story, we all do it. We all do it. When we now started seeing it from the defendant's point of view, instead of starting to look for the wrongdoing and how we can keep ourselves safe, we still do that, right? We look for the wrongdoing and how we keep ourselves safe. But now the wrongdoing is focused on the right person. Now we're looking at the defendant and we're thinking of all the choices that the defendant made to risk the safety of others. And we start to get mad because we start to see how we were, we may be helpless in those situations because we cannot control other people, right? So we can only control ourselves. So, so knowing that jurors, people, all of us insert ourselves into the story you can use that to your advantage, both by one, really being careful about what point of view you tell the story from. Now, does that mean you never tell the story from the, the plaintiff's point of view? Not necessarily. I mean, in my large trucking case that we just won last year um, with Tom Diamore, great client of mine, um, we worked the, the case up for a long time and he came in one day and he said, you know what? I'm just really feeling like I want to start the story with the plaintiff. And I know that that's the wrong thing to do. And everyone says it's the wrong thing to do, but I'm just feeling like it's the right thing to do here. And of course, because I always support you listening to your instincts, because I believe your instincts have been trained out of you. I said, absolutely, let's go for it. And $26.4 million later, I always get that wrong. Is it 26.4 or 24.6? Anyways, over $20 million later, we were proved right, that that was the right decision. So I'm not suggesting that you always tell from the defendant's point of view or you never say tell the story from the plaintiff's point of view. But my point is, is that the story fundamental that you have to understand is that the story is always about the jury or your audience, meaning they will insert themselves into the story like it or not. And the reason Tom's case worked out is because in that story, there was very, very little, if, if nothing, to blame the plaintiff for. It was semi-trucks road raging, and a woman comes around the corner and is in her lane, but the truck is in the wrong lane, and um, collision right there. So there was very little to blame the plaintiff for, if anything at all. So it worked. So just know that your jurors will insert themselves in the story. And that you have this power to make them feel a variety of things. If we tell the story from a particular point of view, know that they will start looking for how to keep themselves safe. Always. And from any point of view, uh, by the way. But that you want to make sure that as they sit there thinking, how would I keep myself safe in this situation? Because we always think those things in dangerous stories. 
that you make sure you don't give them any ammunition <laughs> for blaming your client. And, and, and the way that we can also help jurors insert themselves into the story even more so is one of the techniques that I often use in opening uh, statement stories is by taking the names out. So often we'll say, and then Mr. Uh, Jones was, was doing this, and then Mrs. Smith was doing that. And when you do that, you make the story about Mr. Jones or Mrs. Smith. Now, will jurors still insert themselves into the story? Yes, but if we know that and we're telling the story from the right point of view, whatever that ends up being, uh, and we really want to make it really bring it home, that sense of danger and helplessness that only the jury can really fix here by creating a safety standard, then we want to remove the names because that allows the jurors to really insert themselves into the story because now it's about an 80-year-old man or it's about the driver of a pickup or it's about a patient waiting for surgery. And we all have been or know someone who has been in those situations or are those ages. And that more readily allows the juror to insert themselves in the story so that you can really fully transport them. So that would be my other suggestion here is one, know that the story is always about the audience and that they will insert themselves and that you have to be careful from what point of view you tell the story. But two, that if you remove the names in the story, then it becomes a little bit more easy for them to insert themselves, uh, especially if you've got it right, and then you can really bring it home from that point. Now, when do I bring the names back in? Normally at the end of the story. So we, we tend to end the story when I'm working with clients at the injury or thereabouts. So when the car comes to arrest or whatever happens, we say in the, the name of the driver is blah and the name of the passenger is blah, right? That's where you put the names in. It's very impactful if you do this correctly. All right, the second fundamental uh, that you have to understand about storytelling to get your story right is that the story occurs not in reality, but in an alternative reality. So what do I mean by that? Well, whenever you're telling the story or wherever you're telling the story, it hasn't happened or isn't happening right there and then. But stories are never about something that's happening in the moment. Stories are normally something that happens in the past or in the future. And so to really bring jurors into the story, which is what we want to do, we want them to experience what the plaintiff experienced. We want that to really bring them in viscerally. You have to understand that you have to transport them there. You have to take them into this alternative reality. And this is a big one of why I see so many stories not work is because you are doing things inadvertently that keeps jurors in the current reality, which is in the courtroom, which is not where the story happened. The crash did not happen in the courtroom. The plaintiff doesn't get up and put their um, prosthetic leg on and have trouble showering in the courtroom. All of those things are happening in an alternate, albeit true, reality, but not the reality that the jurors are sitting in in this very moment as they hear the story. 
So what you have to understand here as a fundamental of storytelling is that to transport your jurors into an alternative reality, you have to do some very specific things and you have to avoid some other very specific things. So one thing that you have to do that's really missing, I think in nearly 90% of the stories that I hear, at least the first time that my clients attempt a story, is you have to set the scene. Right. So you've got to tell the jurors where it is we're going and bring them there. So because in my template, the story happens after the teaching section, you'll start something like this. You'll say, now, let me take you back. Because when we tell the defendant's story, that's always the past story. So if, if you've chosen to tell it from the defendant's point of view, you're telling a story of the past Uh, We're going to talk about what tends to tell the story in, but just know that you're going back in time, at least originally. So you're taking them kind of through this portal into this alternative reality. So the first thing you say, let me take you back. Okay, so that's our first indicator that we're taking our jurors somewhere. And now you have to clearly put them in that context because when you skip this part, what ends up happening is they spend all this time trying to figure out where they are and why they're there. And then they miss the story that you're telling. So you have to spend a few moments setting up the scene. So you say, it's December 2017. Okay, so that orients the jurors. Okay, in time, we are in a training room. It's about 7.30 in the morning. All right, so now I see myself in a training room. I'm not sure what training room it is, but I know it's early in the morning. It's December. It's probably cold outside. I could probably have put that in the story too. And I also want you to notice that I'm speaking now in present tense. Why? If you tell the story in, in past tense, okay, there's a difference between taking them back and then keeping telling the story in past tense. It doesn't feel alive or real. You haven't transported them anywhere. You're just giving them information. You're just, you're just catching them up to date. You actually haven't transported them to this alternative reality. All right. This thing that happened. So we are in, not we were in. And and notice I said we are in. So I'm bringing the jury with me. And there are 18 young men and women, some older, but mostly between the age of 18 and 30, sitting in this room because they're there to learn how to become semi-truck drivers. The room's about, and then you might gesture with your hands, this big, and they're all sitting at desks, looking up at an old school chalkboard. When the instructor walks in, boom, and now we start the story. So now we've set the scene. The jurors can see it. There's a board that they're looking at. They're all sitting at desks. We know the ages of most of the group. We know what time it is, and we're telling it in present tense. So notice that we've transported the jury by giving them and setting the scene. That's the first piece. And now we tell the story in present tense to make it real and alive. The third thing that, and this is really the thing you want to avoid doing, and that I see so many of you (laughs) destroy this transportation of the jury into your story, is now you start to use visuals. You say, well, let me show you a picture of the room or here's the intersection. Now what that does, I want to be really clear here is it pulls the jury right back into the courtroom. That is not the alternative reality that you wanted to transport them to. If they were there, they've now been pulled out because the minute that you start showing the picture or bringing in um, uh, something that, that, that 
is in the physically in the courtroom that has to do with evidence or something like that. Now we're back in the courtroom. We're no longer in that training room. So be careful about your use of visuals. Do I use visuals? Absolutely. All the time. I use them in, in, in teaching, for, for example. In storytelling, however, I tend to not use them if I can get away with it. Sometimes I have. If you go back and you listen to the Ringing the Bell podcast, uh, we've talked about ways where we will use flip charts and we'll use them both in the teaching section and then we'll bring them back in the story. So there are absolute exceptions here. But if you don't need to show anything right here, in terms of a picture and you just paint that picture in the juror's mind, that's much more powerful. Now, caveats. For example, if the picture in the juror's mind is much worse, you think, and work with a consultant on this if you need to, then what the actual reality is, let's say you're talking about disfigurement or a birth defect, and the story that you're telling is making it a much bigger deal than what they're actually going to see in a picture or see on the stand, then you may want to. Uh, bring a picture in. But just these are all the factors you need to consider. In general, good storytelling transports the jurors to wherever the story took place in that moment, and it keeps them there. And one way that you can pull them from that is both using names, because normally the names of the people are people are in the courtroom, okay? So when they hear Mr. Jones, they'll immediately look at Mr. Jones, and now, boom, they're back in the courtroom. And the second way is to use pictures, uh, demonstratives, those kinds of things in the story. Keep the story clean, just like I said in the last podcast. Now, the third fundamental that you have to understand about storytelling is that story is different than presenting. We talked a little bit about this, I believe, in the last podcast episode. But this is where you really throw out all the rules. You're no longer, if you've been following me for a while, um, you'll know these terms, using approachable body language or authoritative body language or thinking about whether your palms should be up or down or whether your weight should be even or uneven or how you're holding your head or which ways you're moving or if people are following your eyes and not your hand, all those kinds of things, right? You throw all of that out. Now, the eyes following your, your um, people follow your eyes, not your hands. You're going to keep that one because you're going to gesture into space and want to make sure that you're looking where you're pointing. But in general, most of your presentation skills get thrown out the window. Why? Because when you're telling a story, you now become the characters. So now you're going to use your voice differently. Now you're going to move as the characters may have moved. Now you're going to use mannerisms that the characters may have used. You may pick up an imaginary um, flip chart, or I mean, I'm sorry, imaginary clipboard, or maybe actually have a clipboard, like a prop. You may bring in a chair and sit in it and act like you're driving right? You may use a variety of different props, mannerisms, voice, uh, volume. Now we're in a different way of, of being in terms of communication. And this is the other reason why when we're talking about the difference between storytelling and teaching is that teaching is presenting. It's actually using good presentation skills to get your, your, your points across. Storytelling, you throw all that out. It's much messier. It's a little bit more fun. <laughs> and you get to be and become, unless you're playing narrator, the actual character so that you, that really helps transport the jurors back in time, is that you take different positions and you say, and so the driver said, hey, I know where I'm going. I don't need to look at that. And then the passenger says, well, may, maybe we should stop and look before we go. I mean, it's pretty dark outside, right? You're using dialogue instead of saying, and then the driver said that he didn't need to look at the map and the passenger told him that it was dark. 
Notice the difference. Dialogue brings it to life. Now, why is this all important? I mean, if there's one real theme or thread that we can follow through this is that what we're trying to do is bring it alive. Why? Storytelling is persuasion. When jurors can really fully feel like they've experienced what the plaintiff has experienced, that's when magic happens. Does that mean we get to get rid of teaching? No. The teaching sets up the story so it allows us to do all the things we're going to do. So we don't have to keep stopping and explaining about what, what this is or why that is set up the way it is. It allows us to tell the story in a compelling way. So it's not that we can, if we get really good at storytelling, we get rid of teaching. No, they work in tandem. But what we want to do is have this this piece of our opening that really brings the jury there. Not only that, is that when we're just lecturing at the jury for that hour and a half, which is way too long, by the way, for most openings, it's boring. Storytelling cuts up the opening so that we see different sides of you. When you're teaching, you're a good presenter. When you're storytelling, you become the characters. Then we go back and we deal with some resistance. That's a leadership type nonverbal. Then we tell another story. Now the story is about the plaintiff and what they're like today. Then we do a little bit more teaching when we're talking about, you know, causation. You're going back and forth, which makes it an interesting thing to watch because the nonverbals of teaching and storytelling and dealing with resistance are all very different. That's engagement. That's how we keep our, our jurors engaged. So I hope this has helped. The three fundamentals you have to understand about storytelling to make your story great. And uh, if, again, you missed our window for the H2H membership, we do a lot of storytelling help in there. Make sure you get on the list at fromhostagetohero.com so you can join when it reopens in 2021. We welcome you to that group. And if you're not in our From Hostage to Hero Facebook group, get in there while you wait. Just find us on Facebook. Again, don't forget that review, and we'll talk soon. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sorry's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today. And until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.